Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up and making things happen. This week, the creative person I'm talking to is Dave Cobb. He works for a company called Thinkwell Group, and they create theme park attractions and special events. It's really interesting, fascinating, fun stuff. But before we get into that, um, a little housekeeping. I want to encourage you to go to DennisAnyone.net. You can see pictures that go with some of the podcasts. You can see all the different podcasts there to listen to. Um, you can also donate to my virtual tip jar that helps me keep the podcast free. And I'd like to give a special thank you and shout out to Eric Pumala for uh, sending me a little money that way. It, it really helps out a lot. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Hensley Dennis, Instagram Dennis C. Hensley, or you can email me at dhensley at aol.com. That's just my regular email address. <laughs> so put um, Dennis anyone in the subject line so I don't get you confused with a million uh, pieces of spam that I get per day. All right, enough of that stuff. Here is Dave Cobb. Hey there, I am in the Sherman Oaks home of Dave Cobb. He is vice president of creative development for Thinkwell Group. And Thinkwell Group is a company that does attractions at theme parks, events, big, spectacular museums, things, things in the world, things Real, in the world, tangible things that you can walk into and smell and taste and touch and interact with yeah. experiences. Right. We call ourselves the experience company. Really? That's yeah. cool. Yeah. So we, we, uh, it, it's, it sort of synthesizes things from architecture and, and master planning and filmmaking and interactive design and lighting and audio and media and all those things, sort of all kinds of forms of entertainment, but puts it in a, a real-world context. Right. And I was looking at your resume, some of the things you've won awards for, like the Terminator 2 3D attraction at I Universal, will. which I was, I've experienced. Yeah. I actually experienced that once with Jennifer Love Hewitt. <laughs> FYI, yeah, we did an interview once for a magazine, and the deal was we went to uh, Universal Studios together, and that was one of the rides we went on, I remember that, and we had a very nice time. Love seemed to enjoy herself. Oh, I'm I'm sure she did. I'm sure she did. That that was actually one of my first professional gigs. I I wasn't involved on that one, like, full design, but I wrote a little script for it, like, for the, you know, when, like, when you go to these rides, there's, like, this... Uh, video monitors in the yes. queue line, like you watch while you're waiting. Yeah, like the, we call it the pre-show. Okay, and um, the show had already been designed and had already been installed once in Florida, but they needed a pre-show for the one out here. And they're like, "Hey, you, you do this," and so they just handed it to me, and I got to write this whole sort of stupid backstory for Cyberdyne and 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 sort of t- this uh, talking head infomercial. And it was I, I literally wrote it kind of as a fanboy, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we love this. We'll produce it." And so it was like. My first produced script was this little thing attached to this giant attraction. It was well. I can't believe they kind of treated it as an afterthought because (laughs) that's your first taste of the experience. Yeah, Yeah. and 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 the thing is, it was not so much an afterthought so much as the one in here was going to have a different sort of setup. In physical setup in terms of the building than the right. one that they had already opened in Florida. And so um, it, it, it was one of those things where there was an established story already. How do we make it fit this place here? And it was, you know... It, like Were I said, you up to speed on the Terminator mythology already? Sure, sure. I mean, I love yeah. Terminator 2. I love the original yeah. Terminator. And, and so it was, it was fun to play. And it was one of those things where they're like, you know, I, I sort of did it in a vacuum on my own and they sent it up the, the ranks and it evidently went to camera. And he's like, yeah, this is great. Awesome. So... 
Aces. I got to do. Uh, yeah, I got to participate in the Terminator mythos, and and it was this time. I was a uh, you know a, a underling show writer, second string guy. So it was right. a lot of fun. But it's a big part of the attraction. Right. One of the things I love about what you do, and when I go to theme parks. It's all of the stuff while you're waiting. Right. All of the... How do they do the handles? Like, even at Disneyland, I was looking around at the Indiana Jones. <laughs> all that atmosphere, all that stuff, because you're standing there for a half hour, an yeah. hour. Yeah. All that stuff adds to the experience. Well, absolutely. And and I think, a lot, you know, the shorthand when people ask me what I do, it's easy to say I design theme parks, but it's uh, there's a lot more to it than that. And a lot of people say, oh, you so you design roller coasters. And we're like, yeah, that's part of it. But a lot of it is exactly what you're talking about. It's it's knowing that a day at a theme park, especially very detailed, um, rich sort of environmental ones like Disneyland, are all about um, environmental storytelling. And that everything you look at, read, see, touch, taste, smell, walk past, everything in that environment can contribute to that story. And so... Indiana Jones is a perfect example of that. Like, the minute you step into that, you are literally in the middle of one of those movies and sort of spelunking through a temple. Yes, the ride is amazing, but half of that experience to me is that queue line because it's so extensive and so detailed and rich, you know. And some nowadays you get a lot of people just looking at their phone, you know, whatever. But so it's it's so, but I think that the the fans of these things, especially fans of the movies and stuff, really get into those details. And it's, it's, you have to be faithful to the faithful, you know. Right. Now, of course. So your company gets a job with a theme park, say Universal sure. or whatever, they say we want to do a Terminator thing. Sure. Do you guys go in and bid on that? What is the process for getting a project off the ground? Well, we, we have, our clients kind of run the gamut. Sometimes they're a theme park, like, right. like a, a Universal or a Six Flags or whoever. Sometimes it's a developer, a real estate guy with a plot of land who wants to develop a whole park on his own. Um, sometimes it's an intellectual property holder, like a studio who has a movie they want to develop an attraction around. So it really can start in a number of different ways. Um, uh, Universal and Disney pretty much do their, their, they have their own internal guys doing that. As a matter of fact, Thinkwell was started by a former Disney guy and a former Universal guy and a former Cirque du Soleil guy. And you sort of put that in a blender. Wow. And that's what we do. Talk about a brain trust. Yeah. So there's a lot of, and there's a lot of former Imagineers and former Disney guys working for us. I worked at Universal for a number of years. That's where I did T2. Right. Um, and so we still do work for Universal occasionally. A lot more of our work is overseas or for, um, uh, 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 not for the big three, in other words, you know, right. which are basically Universal, Disney, and Busch Gardens, and Six Flags as well. But, like, we're doing a lot of work for, um, directly for companies like Warner Brothers and Lionsgate, and say, they'll come to us and say, hey, we have this movie franchise. Is it possible for this to fit in theme parks? Not knowing where it's going to end up yet, but, like, hey, why don't we develop some ideas with you guys, and then we'll go, you can help us go pitch it to various park chains, or, or there's a lot of development overseas in China and, and the Middle East right now with a lot of um, new sort of markets of tourism and, and middle class that needs to spend money and go to places right. like theme parks and museums. So a lot of this is, for, a lot of our work's actually overseas. Now I noticed the Ferrari Museum in Abu Dhabi is yeah. on your resume. I was actually in Dubai, but I remember hearing about that museum and how cool it was. Ferrari World. It's actually a theme park. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, and that's one where that was an existing park that had already opened. We were brought in to sort of refresh it and look at new attraction possibilities. So, um, And that's a tough one because uh, it, the brand is, um, is, for lack of a better term, very masculine. 
Right. right. It's very much about cars. You kind of have to be a gearhead. I'm not really a car guy. Right. And so some of our guys at our company are. So that's sort of the key to this is that whenever we design one of these things, we have to take into account that a theme park is a very wide demographic. It's not the long tail of indie movies or, or specific bands or, or books that you want to read. Theme parks have to sort of appeal to everybody. Right. And so something like Ferrari World, one of the things we help them do is create some new attractions there that are slowly being rolled out over the next couple of years that are um, are a wider demographic and in, and are interesting to kids and interesting to mom and um, and those things sort of we we created a couple of new characters for them like sort of animated characters for them and right. and we created sort of Italian street environments for them um, with uh, uh, so that appeals sort of to the to the family demographic and it's right. not just all about sleek red metallic lines and and, and fast race cars it's the pedigree of of Ferrari and the, the, the Italian heritage of it as well and the history of it. So, um, yeah, that was an interesting one. It's that, that was, uh, 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 and that region is blowing up like crazy. There's, have you spent time there? I have, I have Dubai is, uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi are interesting places. Um, the funniest quote, I can't claim this, but I've stolen it a million times is a friend of mine says it's a 15 hour flight to Irvine. <laughs> All right, I like that. I went to a gay, not gay club there. Right, right. You know, that was sort of everything was, and nobody could touch. It right. was really fascinating culturally. It was. I, a lot of people were like, oh my God, can you be gay there? And I'm like, I met a lot of gay people. I yeah, have a couple of friends who are gay, and, and, and it's odd because it's all on the DL. It's course. all on the DL. Yeah. But it's sort of people know. Or yeah. Abu Dhabi and Dubai are trying to be the Vegas of the Middle East. Right, right. Where anything goes, but then they still have right. the, you know, so it's that tension that's very interesting. Yeah, it's 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 an, it's an interesting place. But it from a, from a tourism standpoint, I have friends go, oh my God, I totally want to go. And I kind of say, mm, yeah, you, you sort of don't. And here's, it's not that it's bad. It's that it's aimed at a very specific market. And that market is... Um, uh, warm weather travel for people from like Eastern Europe and China. It's basically the Bahamas of of Europe and 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 the East. Right. Meaning there's nothing that an American tourist can't get better and cheaper by taking a cruise to the Bahamas and going to Atlantis there rather than going to Atlantis and the Palm in Dubai. Right. It's basically high end resorts and shopping. It's nice and it's fascinating and it's huge and sprawling and always under construction. So there's a lot of interesting things there. But as a tourism place, it's really they're aiming at a very specific European market. Yeah. Now, w- within your team, is there something that's sort of your forte? Like, I'm great with. Visuals, or I'm great with overall concept, or is there some is there some way in that, that you're I'm, like that, you're the guy? I'm like I'm the court jester. Basically, I like to think of myself as sort of like I, I. First of all, I work with a team of people that is far more talented than I am. Um, I, I'm I'm a good talker. I'm a good pitcher. Like I can pitch to clients. I I think I'm good at synthesizing ideas from a lot of different places. And but at the end of the day, the really hard work at, at a place like us, at, like Thinkwell, is um, you know, we have illustrators and architects and sound designers and engineers and, and project managers, and, and they're the ones who sort of wrangle the creative guys like me and, and, and sort of keep us in shape, uh, keep us on our toes. They do the hard work. And so I, what I like to think of is my job is to be a pollinator and to sort of float around the project teams and around the, the production floor and sort of stop in on people and see how everybody's doing. And, the Tim Gunn. You kind right. of, you know. Yeah. and oh, t- I mean, Gather around designers. That's the highest compliment anyone could ever say. That, that <laughs> uh, Oh my God, my, my life 
my life's work would aspire to be like Team Gun. I mean, right. who wouldn't want to be dressed like that all the time? First of all, right. dressed to the nines, and 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 he's an athlete, and he can talk, and he, and he and I. My favorite thing about him is he has the iron fist and the velvet glove. Like he yeah. can give. Damning commentary, but in the most constructive, supportive, loving way, you know? For sure. So, oh yeah, he's a role model for sure. I love that. Um, Do you, um, I love like when you go to these things and you think somebody had to decide on that typeface. (laughs) Like, do you have a favorite typeface? (laughs) Do I have a, well, it isn't kind of. I'm a bit of a font snob. Are you really? Yeah, I'm a bit of, like a fontist. Like, a bad typeface can really put me off a project. And there's the easy jokes Comic Sans, Papyrus, Impact. You know, you don't want any of that crap. Who thought that Avatar was going to go with Papyrus? Papyrus, right. When I first saw those (laughs) posters, I was like, I am concerned about this movie. How could you pick that? that? I know, but it sort of worked. Like, I thought James Cameron so, got such big balls, he's like, I'm going to reinvent Papyrus. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Futura fan for, for basic for I've basic been using that reading. a lot lately on I, this one I, job. I, I like it. It's nice and clean, you know? Um, and it's, it's a challenge for us because when you create something in the real world that's, that's supposed to be themed, like, you know, if we're creating something for Harry Potter, we can't just pull a font out of nowhere. No, you, a lot of times you whole, have to design yeah. it, you know. Um, and that's a fascinating one because they did have a full-time graphic design staff for those movies that designed this huge world of printed materials you know, yeah. to make that come to life. But, but yeah, we have a full graphic design staff uh, that work for us that they're the guys that are sort of the tastemakers for that. I think that's the easiest way to sort of sum up each one of the departments that I work with and the kind of talent I work with is that they're each one of them has their own creative focus and, and skill set, obviously, but they're also tastemakers and 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 creative opinions in in the stew of what we're creating. You know, right? Um, we're, we're not a top down company. There's not a, a creative edict from on high from me or anybody else that sort of drives the project. It, good ideas come from anywhere, so we try to make sure that everybody feels empowered to sort of step up to the table and go. You know what? I read the attraction script. What if we did this here instead, or did this? And that can come from a uh, you know, and one of the artists, it can come from a project coordinator, it can come from one of our engineers. And so we sort of try to keep that conversation and that dialogue as open as possible. What's the project that you worked on for just years and years? Because I, I feel like some of these things could just take forever. Yeah, there, there is one that uh, I have worked on for years. Oh, I don't think I can talk about it. It's a major theme park in a, a part of the world that we may or may not have just mentioned recently. Okay. Uh, for a major studio. And it's one of these projects that my I originally got hired at Thinkwell for it back right. in like in like 2007 and it's gone through four full iterations of the whole park like we designed a park and threw it out and designed a park and so threw it out So this place is not open yet. No, it okay. hasn't even been announced. Um, wow. Right. Now for, the, for, checks clear. for any listeners that are listening to this that I have come through my social feeds who are mm-hmm. working in the industry, they know exactly what I'm talking about because right. it's kind of the worst kept secret in the business. Right. Um, but it's a big deal and it involves some very big characters and story worlds that everybody's very familiar with. So the challenge is not so much that it's taken forever. It's that it started as one thing and then wiped clean. Now we have to sort of tweak it a little and come up with new ideas around some of the same characters, you know. So every couple of years, for about three or four years, it sort of got rebooted. It's on a path now that it's going to get built, and it's pretty cool. But, you know, even that, though, compared to, like, Disney and Universal, even that's fast. Like, Disney takes a lot longer for yeah. those things. Have you worked with Disney? I didn't see anything no. on your resume that seemed no. Disney-ish. I actually haven't. I've, um, I, uh, I have interviewed there a bunch of times back right. in my freelance days, and I have a lot of friends that have worked there. Um, 
but I haven't. I've I my my career path came through Universal, right? Um, primarily, and they're similar and different. Um, even more different now uh, since Universal got Harry Potter, and and that's really made them explode as a design entity and their quality and and frankly their budgets went crazy uh, uh, skyward because Potter did so well so um, Comcast, that's good for you guys oh it's great it all boats rise right it's all right. it's good for the industry but it's it's great that um, you know Comcast uh, looked at the theme park business and it, the success of Harry Potter at Universal made them realize oh wait a minute theme parks are a growth industry even when movies aren't yeah. Right? And so they are turning on the money hose and uh, they are opening a new attraction every year at all at both of their coasts and opening new parks in China and all that kind of stuff. So they're huge. I had a, a really but when I worked for them, it was a very different environment. It was very sort of they were the wild west of theme park design, whereas Disneyland, Disney Imagineering was sort of the old school old guard that had been doing it since the fifties. Universal, the tour there sort of matured in the seventies and eighties, and so it was it was very much very different and very sort of shooting from the hip, and I learned sort of trial by fire working there. Well, it seems like Disney has this whole history and this reverence around their brand and yeah. everything, whereas Universal seems a little bit less, uh, you know, precious. No, absolutely, and and Universal was always sort of the more rock and roll park because yeah. you could have T two three D with guns and explosions and and rifles, you know, yeah. with, like literally they. Fire a rifle, you know, the T23D show, they fired a, a, a shotgun over the heads of the audience. Yeah. You'd never do that at Disney. You People know? getting shot at in yeah. Waterworld. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you'd you know? never have that at Disney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Which you know, in a way is kind of fun. <clears throat> right, and it, it, it and as a kid, I, I grew up blocks from Universal back when the tram tour was pretty much the only attraction. And that Jaws would come out of the water, the and that Jaws right, was the, literally on a walker and like a respirator. <laughs> right, right. With yeah. this big sort of carrot shaped teeth, you had these awful like sculpted teeth. But you um, don't want them to get rid of it. You no, can't, can't get rid of it. No, no. There's a there's a there's a, a charm now to the sort of ragtag nature of parts of that park. They're, yeah, they're trying to spit and polish it and gloss it up with the Despicable Me and Harry Potter, yeah. and all this, which is great, and and they do really good work. But there's a charm to the old part of the studio tour that I hope they never get rid of entirely. Right. Um, Did you work on the Harry Potter? Uh, not the theme park. No, right. um, the theme park was all Universal. We did the opening for them in in Florida. We did the event. The uh, event where they, w- yeah, where they had like projection on the castle, and they had uh, a, a eighty piece orchestra conducted by John Williams, and we made these fancy wands that everybody said Lumos at the same time, and they all like. 2,000 people, all the lawns lit up at once and started the show. It was really cool. Did you get chills when that happened? Uh, I wasn't there. I didn't I didn't get to go, damn oh. it. I know. But uh, don't they know who I am? But, exactly. Uh, but, it was, but it was fun to watch. Um, the, the Harry Potter thing we directly did was not the theme park expression of it, not the immersive you're actually in the world expression of it, but um, the studios in Leavesden, which is outside London, where they were all filmed, and as a as a making of behind the scenes attraction. Oh, cool! Um, so Warner Brothers, they bought the uh, Leavesden Studios, which were in um, uh, just outside London. They bought the studios about halfway through the production of all the Potter films. They realized a couple of things. They realized, hey, we have these, um, uh, we have this film industry here. They obviously get you know tax credits for shoot for creating movies in the UK. But they also had this huge talent base that was being formed because of the Potter movies. Right. They had hundreds and thousands of people. Um, and a lot of the stuff that was being built for Potter, because they knew they were going to use it for eight or for eight movies for ten years, it wasn't like fake. Like the Right. The, it was sort of practical. Right. Like the flagstone in the in the Great Hall was 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 
actual stone. It wasn't fake. The tapestries in Sirius Black's house were actually like knotted tapestries, like the real thing. So um, in buying the studio, it was really to make more movies. They're, they've made a lot more films there um, and are continue to do so. But part of it, they put aside a bit of land to do this making of tour. And so we des- we developed that for about four years. I worked on it. Is a- it open? Oh, yeah. It opened in 2012. So if I were a Harry Potter fan, I could go there and do like a behind-the-scenes tour and see all of these cool things that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You can go to WarnerBrothersStudioTourLondon.com and, and look, uh, see all about it. It It is uh, about 140,000 square foot, I think, um, three-and-a-half-hour walking tour through all the sets, props, and costumes from the films. And, and you have a cute little British person talking through it. <laughs> you you can actually you can get the, I forget the actor's name who played Draco Malfoy the the blonde kid. Uh, you can literally get that. You person? can get uh, yeah on a recording. You get a little. Oh, I you was get like, a little. Gosh, oh, no, he's out of work. Tough times. Yeah, tough times. Shit. <laughs> I was like, wow. You know what's funny though? Like he's just in the in this audio guide that you right. can get. Um, um, uh, what's awesome is there are kids who work there. In their in their twenties, like college age kids right. who work as docents, we're basically. super horny. I'm sure, <laughs> <laughs> right? They've got they're to be. Hop, hopped up on butterbeer. Oh my god, you know? they're ma- they're it's... with each other and everything. It's so exciting. But it's in a small town. Uh, it's a, it's in a small suburb outside of London. These are kids that grew up nearby and were cast as extras, as Hogwarts kids, right. as extras in the movies. And now they're working there. They so, sort of define their life. This oh, project. very much so. Yeah. Very much so. And so a lot of them have either are working at the tour as a summer job or a, a college job or are looking to work at the studio in the production of films. So it's created this little community of people that that because of eight years, uh, ten years of production of these eight movies. I mean, there's, it's pretty unprecedented that all of those shot in the exact same place. There's no other film series that has ever done that yeah. in that short amount of time. So, and now we can go there and be... Sort of soak it all in. Absolutely, it's it's pretty magical. I actually uh, only worked tangentially on the original concept, and then a few years later, we added um, uh, the Hogwarts Express. They did a little expansion and added the train, right. the actual train from the films. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we, there's ongoing sort of uh, 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 improvements and things that we've done over the right. years. But what it did for Warner Brothers was they realized that they had a product here in not just in Harry Potter, but in sort of behind the scenes. So I don't know if you've ever done their their studio tour here. In I know, but I hear it's kind of cool and and like intimate and yeah. not super mass. No, it's appeal. not universal. It's not yeah. like a theme park. And we actually just did a new thing for them that opened last year called Stage Forty Eight. It's a um, uh, a, a sort of interactive soundstage called From Script to Screen. It's basically like a little interactive museum that allows you hands-on sort of how, to make, how movies are made. That's, that's so an adi- cool. That's in addition to the tour they already had, which was um, little golf carts and a, and a private guide. And if, if people haven't done it, it's so worth doing. I tell locals, it's great. Like, it's it's the thing to take your friends from out of town to when you're tired of Disney Universal. And right, Who, but they wouldn't... The, the sort of the undiscovered uh, gem. Absolutely, it's it's really lovely, and so we continue to develop stuff for them there. That's super cool as well, right? And they're and they're very consciously not doing the universal thing. They're like, this is not going to turn into a theme park. We are um, behind the scenes, and that's the thesis of the thing. And it's a little classier. Like they've yeah. they've taken a, a, a an attempt to a make little more it exclusive, a little more exclusive, and it's really great. They they uh, they did they do a great job, and it's been really fun developing stuff for them. Because the time frame for what you do is so long, what's the part of the project or the process where you get the biggest creative rush? When it all comes together? Oh, wow. When you go, I think in the very beginning and the very end is probably the easiest answer. The sausage making in the middle is always hard, right? Right. In any creative process, there's going to be compromises and changes and things. And all that happens. And all that's great. That's part of the work. 
I think the two biggest moments for me are at the very beginning, like when you're coming up with the concept, we never get it right at the first moment, right? It always takes a little while. And there's, there's always a moment in every project, there's the aha moment where everybody in the team kind of looks at each other and goes, click, oh, God, that's totally right. Like when, when everybody is on the same wavelength, right? right? That's a great moment and when that happens because if there's a creative challenge that we haven't discovered, that moment that we all discover together is pretty great. The, bi- the other thing for me is just opening day, right? Like being at an attraction um, and watching, and, and, I, and I've done this with every attraction I've personally opened that I've worked on. I'll usually go opening day and spend six or eight hours all day just sort of sitting on a park bench, um, sipping, watching sipping my coffee, watching people, and taking notes and hearing what they have to say or getting in line and not, not saying who I am and right. just listening to their conversations, riding with them. Do you um, ever bait them and say, hey, what do you think of that signage? <laughs> right, right. Hey, how's that landscaping over there? Pretty <laughs> yeah, great, yeah, right? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I really like <laughs> that curvature of the, the uh, cement there. <laughs> What's the one that was the biggest deal when you talk about going to an opening? I would probably have to say uh, when I worked for Universal, I developed an attraction for Orlando called Men in Black Alien Attack. Right on. Based, based on the Men in Black series. And it is um, was a f- sort of a um, uh, first of its kind at the time uh, interactive ride where you actually um, competed against other ride vehicles. And it was like a shooting gallery dark ride. Um, where you were rounding up aliens on the streets of New York because they were loose, and you were training, you become an MIB agent, basically. And it was sort of the first big, big job of my career where I was involved from very early concept uh, at, at Blue Sky, basically, all the way to opening day. Yeah, and it was the f- I had been on other projects that had opened. I had participated in a lot of other projects like T two three D and the Star Trek experience in Las Vegas, and those were sort of smaller jobs at a, at a, at a sort of lower rank. Um, MIB was the first big break where I was I was hired as the creative director for the ride, and it was uh, it was an education. I mean, it was um, learning how um, intellectual property development works, like working for a movie studio and sort of developing their movie into a thing, right? Right. Uh, expanding that universe beyond the two dimensional surface of the of the movie screen or the comic books or books that it came from. You know, when you're working on something like Men in Black, do you have does it have anything to do with Will Smith or Tommy Lee Jones? Do they have are they somehow connected to it? Do they need to sign off on it? No, no. They, we, we did hire uh, uh, Will to be in the pre-show. Right. So eventually, we uh, once the ride was um, designed, uh, we did get in touch with him, and they hired him to be on camera again and reprise his role. Right. But during the, the process of it, it was more about, um, you know, it's not a Universal movie. It's actually Columbia. It's licensed, like in the same way that Universal licenses Harry Potter from Warner Brothers. Right. It was a licensed property, so it was dealing with Columbia, Sunny Columbia. But the biggest thing to deal with there was, was actually Steven Spielberg, because he was an executive producer of that movie. And so, <clears throat> in addition to being executive producer of the movie, he's also a creative consultant for the Universal Parks. And right. so whenever you develop an attraction at Universal, there's a meeting where you have to pitch to Steven. And did you have to did you have to go to that meeting? I did. I had I was the guy, like me and my oh boss. Oh my god. Basically, I had right. And it's the it's the moment where I tell people if I had collapsed dead after that I would I would die happy because I got to actually have uh, it we we were what well, the best part is we were scheduled for a hard stop after 45 minutes, like his assistant told us over and over again, it's all you get. And we're like, great, we'll be in and out in 30. Uh, we spent nearly two hours talking to him because he was so enamored of the concept. And it was literally two hours at Amblin, like in one of the old things, and there's like an E.T. on the wall. Right, and all this stuff, all of... And and I was... I, I kind of didn't know what to do with myself. I mean, at the time, I was 28, 29. 
in charge of this project wow. and creatively and representing the work of hundreds of people that, that on the team and having to go sort of say, hey, here, Mr. Spielberg, here's our, you know. <clears throat> and you got him on a good day. He seemed to like it. It man, went well. He was a, he's such an interesting guy in person because... And you know, it, it was a it was a clue as to why he's successful. In addition to being just a brilliant creative guy, when he's in a room with you, he's fucking in a room with you. Right. Like he's there for you, and it's not about aggression or power with him. Like the minute we sat down, he locked eyes with me and was like, "All right, what do you got?" And like he was so engaged and wanted me to pitch and succeed. Like he he brings it out of people. He really does. Like, he doesn't seem competitive with no. other artists. He seems to want. Their best, yeah. From what I hear of other people that have had similar experiences, yeah. It was it was really an incredible couple of hours. And then the funniest part was before we went in, my boss is like, "Who's done this a million times with Stephen?" He's like, "All right, so uh, you, you know, keep a, a pad open, and when he gives you a suggestion, just write it down." He, he, he likes to see him written down. He likes to know that you're hearing him. So I right. did. So I had a pad, and he's. As I'm pitching the ride, he has no problem with, like, jumping in and go, oh, wouldn't that be funny if this happened? Wouldn't that be funny if that alien, like, what if those aliens were disguised as meat and, like, sitting on a park bench and, like, a, my head with a with a baseball cap on, but then the newspaper drops and it's, like, three aliens holding up a stick with my head on it. And we're like, that's a really great idea, Stephen. I'll write that down. And and just as, as my boss told me, we're going to have a list of about 20 things. It'll probably add up to 15 or $20 million. And we're going to distill it down to the two or three things we think we can do and promise Stephen, here's what we're going to do. That's This is like the drill, right? Right. And so, yeah, sure enough, at the end of this, we had this long list of really unbelievably cool ideas that we could never do on, t- on time or on budget for the ride we were creating. But it wasn't about saying you have to do these. It's like, have you thought of this? Have you Wouldn't thought of this? Cool Wouldn't if? it be cool if? And he, and he got into it, and he vibed on it. And was there an idea that he gave you that made it in? That one I just mentioned. We actually, there's an alien target in the ride that is literally him sitting on a park bench reading a newspaper. That's and so you, cool. And if you zap at the, at the Amblin logo, or e, I think it's E.T. On the, on, the, on the baseball cap, um, it, the newspaper drops, and it reveals that it's three little aliens yeah. holding its head on a stick. And a couple of other things. Um, How fun. Yeah, like... Uh, yeah, it was, it, it was, it, like I said, it was one of those meetings where I'm like, I had to pinch myself afterwards and going, well, that happened. I've had a That's meeting with Steven awesome. Spielberg, you know? So. Some people that I talk to that make movies have a hard time going to movies because they think of the editing and they think of the thing. When you go to a park, <laughs> are you looking at all the stuff or are you able to just enjoy it? How, what's that experience like when you go to something <clears throat> you didn't design? Um, I, I do tend to be analytical about things in a park. It's just, it's my, it's my job. Right. Um, I think what I like to pay attention to more than than picking it apart, or I should say, the thing that gives me joy and the thing I can enjoy, can enjoy, um, in even in the face of picking things apart, is watching other people's reactions, because that's an education to me. Like seeing how different demographics, from kids to adults, um, from locals to tourists, um, uh, you know, uh, day to night audience. Like, there's a lot of different vectors that we can sort of look at how audiences respond to things. So it's very much like, uh, you know, a director sitting and watching uh, and, and getting that catharsis from the audience in a full house. And so that's the thing I love to watch the most. Even if it's something you didn't design. Even if it's something I didn't design, I do love watching people's reactions. I especially love, like, one of my favorite things in the world, as many times as I've been to Disneyland, because I've been, at this point, probably thousands of times in my life, um... The thing I love the most is when I find out a friend or an acquaintance has never been. I sort of go, 
and I squeak, and I'm like, oh my god, you're go- I'm, I'm taking you. And you want to take them? You have to be the. Person. I have to be your your Sherpa because I'm because wow. I'm because uh, I'm a trained professional. Yes. <laughs> and and I like to think I give a pretty good tour of the place. And but but moreover, regardless of my skills in showing them the place, I love and honest to god, absolutely adore watching people's unfiltered first reaction of a place like Disneyland, um, because. I've taken hardened cynics who hate Disney product and, you know, taken them on, uh, on, uh, 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 Indiana Jones and watching them hoot and holler and come off all smiles and then ask him, so this place isn't so bad, is it? You know? And they're like, yeah, I guess it's got its charms, you know? Um, and sort of, I love seeing people's reactions to it and love seeing other, uh, points of view that aren't professional and that, that aren't professional or that aren't your general tourist. But are people I know and, and respect their opinions on other things, like movies or music or whatever, or design of other sort, I love picking their brain about, what do you think of that? What, what, what's your takeaway? What's your favorite design <clears throat> feature at Disneyland, your favorite attraction? I just saw uh, the Cars ride for the first time. Amazing. I just thought it was spectacular. It's incredible. It's incredible. The, I mean, the design, yeah. not just the ride itself, but everything around it. That and rock work. You're inside it, yeah. and outside, and yeah. I just thought it was incredible. It's amazing. And talk about, I mean, I love Pixar to death, but Cars is certainly not at the top of my list. No, I mean, of course. That's not a movie that I really care much about. That was right. made for little boys who like Story of my cars. hometown. Right. Oh, <laughs> Doc Hollywood, sorry. It's certainly uh, my hometown. <laughs> But like it's a it's a fine movie, but it's right. not the one that I return right. to it's over not, and over again, right? Uh, it's not, right? It's not know, not the Toy Incredibles, Story. Toy Story, yeah. right? It's a fine movie and a, and a beautiful one, but it's right. not it's not one that I am particularly a, a repeat viewer of. Right. But that land made me fall in love with it because it's so beautifully detailed, um, and and so much heart and thought and clever right when i'm homesick i can go to cars land because it's oh. very much like my town oh really yeah that's so Over cool arizona oh i and i do love the all the all the car puns like one of my favorite details in that in all of cars land is when you're standing at that overlook where you can see the whole ride like not in the queue but on that little roadway past the diner right. there's um there's a, 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 a like an information panel like you would find at a national park and it shows a, 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 a cross section of the of the landscape you're looking at, and it's like the geological terminology for all the rockwork and sites that you're seeing of the natural beauty, like you right. would see at a national park. But they're all car puns. Like every last one of them is about it's um uh it's called the Cadillac Range. It's okay. the name of the mountain. Is one one section of the the thing that uh, 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 uh Piston Peak is like one of this right one of the, right. So it's all these car jokes, and it's just. Every last bit of, of wordsmithing in it is the punniest of pun pun. Right. But within this realm of being written by whoever was the National Park Ranger of Carsland. You know right. what I mean? So there's levels of meta in that that are so lovingly rendered, right? right. That some guy, so it was somebody's job somewhere to write that text panel, and it probably took months of revision and showing to John Lasseter, and, you know, yeah. I just, I love that. I love that somebody had to figure that out. Right, somebody you know? did that, and yeah. probably spent forever on it. <clears throat> What's your favorite thing in Disneyland? Um, the, the quickest answer is Haunted Mansion. Um, yeah. I remember riding Haunted Mansion as a kid and being flipped out by it. Um, and, you know, especially the part at the end when they, uh, the hitchhiking ghosts are sitting in the thing with you. Oh, and yeah. The, and the voice says, and a ghost will follow you home. Right. Like, at 
six or seven, I was convinced that was actually going to happen. Right. And then the kicker is, as you're going up that, that speed ramp, that escalator on the way out, there's that creepy little little, little Leota, like Madame Leota is like the, the spirit of the ride. Right. She's this little teeny bride, and she's like, uh, she's like, uh, um, uh, uh, what, oh God, I'm blanking on what she says. Um, I'm a, I'm a super fan. Why is this happening? Everybody's going to ridicule me. That's um, okay. It was, it was like... It, I, it, I could help you, but I have no idea. Yeah, uh... Hurry back. Right. Hurry back. Be sure to bring your death certificate if you decide to join us. Like, it's this creepy come on from this weird little talking doll. And I remember at six years old, my brain putting all it together and being that combination of petrified, but I couldn't stop looking at it. And I couldn't stop looking at the the mansion itself and thinking, I want to go back on that, but I'm too scared, but I want to go back on it. It's that that conundrum you have when you're a kid. It's like when you first discover horror movies that they're, you you don't want to see it, but you're enthralled by it, you know? Right. And so Haunted Mansion really became an obsession of mine as a kid. And, um, and I, they, you, Disney released this thing called the Chilling, Thrilling Sounds of the Haunted Mansion, which was a, a it was record, an album, right? An album, remember? And one side of it was all ghost stories and weird ones at that, and then the other side was like the soundtrack to the ride. And I would play and replay and play that thing over and over. I think I wore that album out two or three times. And <clears throat> for Halloween, like we we didn't have a big front yard like a lot of kids. Like we lived in a townhome, little condo, so I didn't have like I want I wanted to do a, a Halloween. I wanted to do my own haunted mansion for Halloween so bad. Because you know that that's a a thing that happens here, like Halloween mazes, you know, and things right, people do course. in their backyards. There's like suburban haunts that right. people do here in Southern California. I grew up on those, and I grew up on the haunted mansion. I totally wanted to do it, but I could never had and we never had the space. So I um, I remember one year I actually took like the album had these pull out pages in the middle that were like pictures from the ride, right? And I had all these Disney books and things, and I went to my dad's office and I like. I stole the Xerox machine for an hour and like blew everything up to sort of tabletop size and then hand colored it all with colored pencils and made like little dioramas of the ride and then played the sound and then put it, set them up in my garage and put the soundtrack on, on a, on a record player and then took a shopping cart and put a cardboard box painted black, like a cowl, like the doom buggies in the ride and told my friends to sit in it and would push them slowly past the little dioramas that I had painstakingly made that were lit by like, you know, a black, Black light light bulb. It was the, <clears throat> the cheesiest thing ever. That's amazing. But, how many how many days were? Oh God, months. I probably months. St- I, I spent my entire summer vacation making it. You know, and being, then people would go and like four kids in the in the neighborhood yeah. did it. You know, and oh, but I, I was I was very proud of it. How I, old would you have been? Oh, eight, right. seventy eight, seventy nine. Yeah. Are there other things in your childhood <clears throat> that when you look back, it makes sense that you do what you do now? Ha. <laughs> uh, yeah, some of my favorite cars growing up, uh, some of my favorite toys growing up. I loved slot cars, like, you know, little race cars and, the, yeah. and, and model train sets, little miniatures. I loved those things. Um, and by the time I became obsessed with Haunted Mansion, the other thing I would do is I would take, like, um, oh, and I was into the Universal Monsters. Like, I had those snap-together Frankenstein glow-in-the-dark monster monster model kits. Right. I was, And they would... You know, they would glow at night and scare me and give me nightmares, but I also love them because he's such a tragic character, you know. I think I saw the Universal Monster movies about the same time, maybe six or seven years old. And they're so psychologically weird for a kid because they're alluring, yet they're scary. And and so I'll put all that in a blender, and I would take, like, 
my slot cars and I and my Legos and my Lincoln Logs, and I'd build like little scenes around my slot cars with the monster models in them, and then I'd drive my my little slot car very slowly through it all, like a little model dark ride. And I I I I, kept, I remember very clearly. I was like, I wish I had a camera to like stick. Nowadays, any kid can get a GoPro, you know. But I wish I had a camera that small so I can get down there and see what it looks like in the scale. So I build see, these see what it felt like to be on that. But I never thought of it as design. I never thought of it as it this is when playing. I wanted. It was just playing. It was just just mashing up, you know, the things I loved. Did you grow up here in California? I did. We moved here when I was about five. Yeah. And so I'm pretty much a local now. Um, do you have the Silver Pass thing at Disneyland or whatever that is? <laughs> no, that you get that when you work there. Oh yeah, do you have? Yeah. <clears throat> but I do have a I do have a season pass, season and I, pass. I've had one ever since um, they introduced them. Because Disneyland used to be, remember, it was A to E tickets, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. E ticket with space definitely nine. an E ticket, right? Yeah. E ticket, right? E ticket, right? That's um, a Julie Brown, Julie Brown reference, reference right? Bam! Very nicely done. Yeah. Um, uh, but in the '80s, they switched to a, a single ticket. For the whole park, right? And, and as part of that, they offered season passes, and that was I was I don't know thirteen or fourteen, right? And so I saved up my money when I was like fifteen years old to get my first season pass, and I couldn't even drive at that point. I actually learned to take the bus from North Hollywood to Anaheim, right. which took me like three and a half or four hours, but I did it a couple times that summer because I'm like, God damn it, I saved up for this pass, I'm going to use it. And you still love it, even though you work in a similar industry. Oh yeah, it's never sort of colored. It never feels like, oh, I can't. It, it, I'll tell you when it when it does do that is when it's crowded and right. you know the last decade or so of expansion at that resort where they put in another park and they put in hotels and things. Right, like it's great and I think it's awesome, but they also have expanded to the point where those season passes have become sort of their undoing. Like you know, there's so many they 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 gave away the gate. They basically charged nothing. There was a time when they were doing season passes for like. A hundred bucks, right. right? And so it kind of turned the place into a mall a little bit, and so those crowds are still around. They're sort of like you've probably heard about the price hikes they've had recently. They raised the prices like crazy for tickets and season passes. It's kind of the only thing they can do to sort of get the crowds back to a manageable level, right? So that's the part that I that I that I where I fall out of love with it a little bit. Like we avoided it all Christmas. Uh, between Christmas and New Year's is like you might as well shoot yourself in the foot. There's no reason to go. Right. But um, and I'm actually going this sun this Sunday is my birthday and we're going on my birthday. But it's also coinciding with the closure of uh, let's see the Aladdin show's last performance on Sunday and that the, show's really good. I love it. I love it. It's pretty great. And then they're also closing the Rivers of America and the Big Thunder Barbecue because part of that is being turned into Star Wars land. Yeah. And so all the fans, all the Park foamers. We call them foamers, by the way, theme park fans, because they foam with the mouth. So, uh, park, but I, say it again. Foamers. Foamers. Yeah, theme park foamers. Theme park foamers. Yeah, okay. they, they foam with the mouth. I love you all, but okay. you're very rabid. Um, uh, uh, and they're all going to be there on Sunday because they're going to be there to see this stuff for her closes. So yeah. I'm sort of dreading that my birthday is going to be really crowded. But it's going to be full of foamers. It's full of foamers. But, full of foamers. But, but at the same token, for you're every, sort of a foamer in your own oh, way. I completely cop to that. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally am. And when I do, every once in a while, I'll go, like, you know, I'll play hooky and go on a Tuesday. And, 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 and do it up. And do it up. And it's like when nobody's there in the middle. Like, Tuesday in February, folks. Go on a Tuesday in February. Nobody will be there. Um, and... And I and it reminds me what a what a what a, a thoughtful place it is. Yeah. Like 
and there's so much thoughtful design in it. For all the commercialism and crassness of Disney and branding and everything's got merchandise and, and you know, it's $5 for a churro, I get all that and I get the complaints of that. Right. But underneath all of that, there still is a nugget of an experience that is, yeah. is well-crafted and heartfelt. Fuck, I want a churro right now. I know, right? Thanks for <laughs> what's, what's the best thing to eat at Disneyland? Oh! Because you've been there so much, you probably know what's oh really good. Oh my god! Um, I, I um, there's that's there's a lot of answers to that question because I like to eat when I'm at Disneyland. That's I think well eating, because I don't go enough that I'm just taking my I'm taking my chances. Right. I don't remember if something was good last time or not. I'm just like and a lot of people think, oh god, it's just Disney, so it's hot dogs and pizza and hamburgers and it's all overpriced. Well, right. it was twenty twenty years ago. Absolutely, the food there was not good. But one of the big revelations of the last. 15 years of that resort is, oh, if you raise the quality of food, we can raise the price incrementally and it'll sell more and people will stay longer, right? So meals are, and snacks are a big part of the program. I actually think food and beverage is a, another attraction at Disneyland. It's a reason to go. Right. Um, uh, uh, and, and part of that also, not at Disneyland, but at California Adventure across the way is booze. Um, you know, there's a yeah, lot of, there's, I was, I, when I was there recently, I was like, oh, look at the booze. There's a lot of booze. Hashtag Disney drinking. It's yeah. like day drinking at Disneyland is one of my favorite activities. You go, yeah. you go to either the Carthay Circle, which has the best Manhattan I've ever had, yeah. or you go to Trader Sam's, which is over at the, hot, at the hotel, Disneyland Hotel, and that's like a tiki bar. Right. This magical, enchanted tiki bar. And they've got all these tiki drinks. And you go and you... You go at noon when it opens. <laughs> it's four o'clock somewhere, right. and and you drink up, and you have lunch, and you get schnockered. You go back in the park and have a good time. Like, it's one of my favorite activities. What's the delicious thing that people probably don't know about? Uh, let's see. Um, the go-to that everybody goes for is the, the is um, Dole Whip. Everybody knows the Dole Whip right. at, uh, at, um, the, at the Tiki Room, right? Which is basically pineapple soft serve it's right. very good but that's the thing that there's these long lines and it because it's the only one place to sell it my favorite thing is actually around the corner from there and it's a it's a thing called the bengal barbecue and oh it's, yeah uh, it's across from indiana jones and the, and the jokers right and they serve meat skewers and they have one in particular that's the spicy beef skewer this um that is this spicy sauce i think it's uh, uh, black pepper and soy sauce is pretty much all it is but it's so effing good okay. and and they serve also serve there this jalapeno cheese pretzel. And so what you get is like the perfect combo for me at Disneyland is that spicy beef skewer and this jalapeno cheese filled pretzel and you dip them into each other and it's like Ugh, I'm so hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, so it's heaven. That's my favorite, my favorite snack for sure. As a fan, what would be your dream project? Oh my is god. Is there something that already exists in the world that you would like, oh, I would have killed to work on that? Yeah. Or is there something that you would like to see happen? Yeah, as my friends know, um, I'm a huge Tron nerd. I grew up with Tron. It was I was 12 when it came out in the theaters. Um, I was learning to program computers in junior high. I had an Atari 2600 that attached to my TV and a Commodore 64 and an arcade down the street. So when that movie opened, it sort of boop, hit me square between the eyes. Right. Um, and I was—I've been obsessed with it ever since, and, and I actually have both arcade machines from that movie in my in my guest room right now behind us. There we um, go. Uh, so Tron would be a big one, and they actually are developing now. You know, Tron Legacy, the sequel, w- was not a flop for the move for the studio, but it wasn't a huge hit. Right. It wasn't a Star Wars. It wasn't like it. we got to make this a ride fast. No, but it was before they had bought Star Wars, and they were developing. They they are they are in the middle of building a park in Shanghai, in China, and. Their Tomorrowland area needed a 
updated version of Space Mountain, basically. And the only sci-fi property they had was Tron. And so they actually developed in our building, and it's opening next year, something called Tron Light Cycle Power Run, I think. And it's like a light cycle coaster. And they duel inside the game grid. So it's like an indoor coaster like Space Mountain, but with these little light bikes. And they have onboard audio, and, and, and it's very cool. And you would have loved to oh work on that. Oh, my God. I went, when I heard they were doing it, I'm like... And, I, and when I heard they were doing it, I was already working for the Quill. And I was like, oh, my God, maybe I should go jump ship and work on this, because I would lose my shit. Um, Are you tempted to go to Shanghai just to go on it? Oh, I will. I mean, yeah, what, it's gonna that'll ha- be research. Oh, it's going to happen. Oh, it's going to happen. <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be the boondoggle. That'll be the research trip. You know? Yeah. Um, I think another one for me would be um, Lord of the Rings, because I was huge into the Hobbit books as a kid. Right. Um, less into the Lord of the Rings books so much as the movies, because I, 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 uh, they actually introduced me to reread the books again. Um, I only read like the first one when I was a kid, but I read The Hobbit like a million right. times. So that world of the Shire and everything, I think, is sort of a dream project. Is anyone doing that? No, not at the moment. Not right. at the moment. I've pitched it. I'm like, hey, why don't we use this? Because I, I know when I was in New Zealand, they have tours, and right. there's a whole industry yeah. down there. Yeah, and I think that's a really rich world that could, um, you know, create a number of unique experiences, be they rides or food or shows. I think there's just a lot going on there that would be fun to play with. What's your pet peeve when you see something that, oh, I can't believe they made those benches like that? Or is there something that is like always gets your goat a little bit about <laughs> design or places like that? In a park? Yeah. Uh, um, 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 well, yeah, I think bad space planning is, I, I always hate. Like, you know, it, we have a term in the industry where it's like, it's, it's really impossible to, des- to design the church for Easter Sunday, right? Like... Easter Sunday is when the church is most full, but you don't want to design to that because then you're because it's always going to feel empty, right? Or you're building, you're overbuilding for uh, for ninety percent of your operational time, right. you know. But when I go somewhere and there's and Disney's really good at managing, even when it's really packed, they're very good at sort of keeping everything flowing. Um, but I always hate like if I walk into and this happens not just at theme parks but like malls and shops. Like if I walk into a store and and I you know trip over a, a, a display or have to shimmy past something because it's not big enough or like you know going through a store that uh, where there's stuff that you can knock down low because because you're dragging your shopping bags around like that's just bad planning you know right um, things uh, I think space planning is probably my biggest one just making a space feel like it's it it's usable and workable and not too crowded which right. is a it, it, it's a, it's almost an intangible. Like I'll walk into a place and it will just piss me off, and I won't know why. Yeah, you're like, ugh, ugh. bad feng yeah, shui. Right, sort of. Yeah, right. Like yeah. it's 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 hard to. It's sometimes it's hard to put my finger on it. Yeah. Now you've won several awards, Thea awards. The, uh, yeah, not personally. These are awards right. that are given to projects I've been involved with. Um, Thea is, is the themed entertainment awards. Okay. Um, uh, that's sort of like the theme park Oscars. It's actually closer to if you know anything about like. The AIA, the Architecture Institute of America, or the IAGA, the Graphic Design Institute, like they're professional organizations that give out sort of merit awards for right. the industry. It's not like voted on like the Oscars. It's it's something that's curated every year as a way of sort of um, and and the awards actually go to the to the to the people to the owner operator, not necessarily the designers get. Uh, uh, um, 
acknowledged, but like it's awards to Disney and Universal and you know San Diego Zoo and whoever that's getting an award that year to say thank you for investing in our industry. It's like an industry award. It's very important. Have you been to? Is there a ceremony? Yes, there's a ceremony. There's a big. Have you sat there and wondered, are they going to call our name? No, because they announced it ahead of time. Oh, I know. Right. There's no suspense. Right. So the project. Have you ever gotten to go up on stage? Uh, yeah, I actually I had that it, moment. Yes, what's funny is I uh, uh, for Men in Black, I actually went up and and uh, uh, um, accepted with. Did you rock a tux or a suit? I did. I you rocked, rocked a, a tux. I rocked a tux. I also got to go present an award once because um, a Tron thing that Disney did this alternate reality game, like one of those you know those games that you play in the real world, like that are promotional for movies. They call them sure. ARGs. They did a big one for Tron, and it actually won an award in our industry because it resulted in this pop-up attraction at Comic-Con. They actually recreated, like, Flynn's Arcade. So we gave it an award. And I was the one who nominated it, and they're like, all right, you're going to give them the award. So I went up, and not only did I rock a tux, but I pulled a, a, a disc out from inside my from inside my jacket and held it up when they won the award. And like like this a Tron is, disc. Right, Tron disc. Like, this is for the users, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway. Very inside joke. Very inside joke, right. You know right. what? You took a chance. Like Angelina nerd. and the leg. Right. You I got no up. laugh at all, but <laughs> you just lots of eye it. rolls. Right. What's the Star Wars line going to be like? Oh, uh, uh, really awesome, I hope. I yeah. mean, they're, they're going to spend a ton of money and, and they're going to get it right like they did this first movie. Like they're, yeah. they're going to, uh, you know, uh, focus group it within an inch of its life, exactly. I'm sure. Um, but no, I actually have a lot of friends working on it and I have no idea what it's going to be. Um, I just know that the precedent is stuff like Cars Land. And, and yeah. before that, Harry Potter Land that Universal did, Wizarding World of Harry Potter, is so immersive. And theme parks, up until then, were not about, like, one land around a single story. Like, Tomorrowland was submarines and Space Mountain. Everything and in the future. Everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Frontierland was David Crockett and, you know, the Old West and all this stuff. So the, the, it was a really sort of a paradigm change when Universal said, we're going to make one land around an entire one story, the Harry Potter series. And Cars Land is, I don't know if it's a reaction to that, but it certainly is a reflection of it. Right. And, and, it, and, and so that's what intrigues me is they're going to take, you know, what, 40 years of Star Wars history and make it real? That's yeah. kind of exciting. I, I, there's a lot of expectation there, not just on quality, but like, what do you think of when you, uh, if I go to Star Wars Land, like, what's your guest expectation? This is a thing we, this is a game we play when we start projects. Like, What's the when thing you expect as a guest? Right. Yeah. Like, what do you expect? Well, I want to meet a Wookiee. I want to pilot a Millennium Falcon. I want to uh, actually put my hands on a lightsaber and try it out. Like, yeah. there's a number of things that experientially, in one way or another, they're. I want to drink blue milk, right? Like, yeah. I, I want to see what blue milk tastes like from 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 Aunt Beru, you know, um, right. and Uncle Owen. Uh, um, I I, I want to meet R two D two. Right, I want to meet an alien. I want to. I, I want to. You would want to go to the bar. I want to go to the bar. I want to go. Yeah. Bar, I want to go to the bar. I want to have a clandestine um, conversation with a smuggler in in the bar. Right. right. So I, and I think I'd want to be somewhere sandy and deserty. Right. Right. Yeah. Or Ewoki like, and green. Like yeah. it could be that too. Yeah. Um. But and and it, it, judging by things like Cars Land and things like um, Wizarding World of Harry Potter, I know Disney is sort of going through that mental checkbox themselves. I, I'm sure they're coming up with really cool ways. And a lot of people are focusing on, well, what technology are they going to use? Is it going to be a coaster? Is it going to be a, a simulator ride? Whatever. It's like, well, first of all, none of that matters. Disney's going to do something that's going to blow your mind that you've never seen before because that's what they do. They come up with some new conveyance or new projection yeah. system or something. What's more important is how they make that technology disappear. Like, 
Disneyland, as much as we like to talk about the tech, at the root of it is like, how does that tech disappear to tell a story? Right. And and that's what excites me about Star Wars Land is what on how on earth are they going to tell this forty year universe? When of is stories? that supposed to open? Uh, they haven't really announced it, but yeah. my gut, uh, the rumors are like an, at least four or five years, like yeah. 2019, 2020. Right on. I'm I'll. I'll be first in line. There you I'm go. I'm very excited. Do you sketch? No, I don't. Not at all. I'm, I'm a terrible artist. What are the tools you use in your work day to day? Day to day, my tools are writing, uh, emails and scripts and narratives and, and sort of documents that uh, in the same way right. a theatrical director or a movie director will have a script. Um, I, very much the same way. Um, but also things like keynote i hate to say it powerpoint we do a lot of presentations where sure. we show art and pitch things to clients um i think my number one tool is not really a software thing it's just um it's the ability to to to, to listen and ask questions because that's what i do day to day is i just work with all these artists and, and technicians and things and sort of try to synthesize what they're doing into what i know the client wants and what i know the budget is and what i know the schedule is so it's very much a similar job to, again, like a movie director or a theater director, where it's about working with other disciplines and, and their skill sets and tools, but synthesizing them into a greater whole. Now, not referring necessarily to the work that you've done, but does, a, does an attraction ever not work? Oh, Flop? Yeah. <laughs> does it ever be like, oh, that didn't go? Because it goes, there's so many years of planning. Right, right. Um, I wouldn't say it's... It, you don't have a flop with an attraction like you do with a flop movie. Right. Because a flop movie will just die and they'll just relegate right. it to... A flop attraction, they're stuck with it for they're a while. They're stuck with it. It's right there, yeah. So I've worked on, a, on attractions where things didn't work so well when they opened and they had to spend additional money and excuse me and time to um, sort of zhuzh them up and fix them. Right. I think in that sense, our business is a lot closer to theater. Like, you'll do previews, and if it flops in the previews, you got to fix it before opening. Right. And ours is the same way. So I've never worked on anything that was a flop. I've worked on things that were sort of, um, you know, what do you call them? Um, uh, uh, um, uh, when, it, when it's not a huge hit, but it's a... It's a um, uh, a, a fan favorite kind of a thing. A sleeper? Know. Sleeper, that's it. That's the term I was trying to get. I've, I've worked on things that were sort of sleeper hits that right. weren't massive, but but they had their fans, you know. What's the most random project you've worked on that is sort of in this world, but kind of not? Uh, I've done, let's see, I've done a lot of things in um, uh, museums and zoos and aquariums, which are sort of adjacent. The weirdest one, I'll say, is, is actually a theme park ride. And it was a ride based on on, on an intellectual property that the, the park owners uh, owned. Uh, it was for Paramount, and um, at the time they were partnered with CBS. And Survivor was one of their brands, and I actually made a ride based around Survivor. Did it and get made? Yeah, it was built. It was actually built and opened in um, uh, uh, Santa Clara in Great America, up north in Northern California. Okay. So it was a ride park. It was more like a Six Flags park, you know. Right. And um, and they had a coaster based on Top Gun, and they had right. you know they had some rides based on other. They had a Nickelodeon area. So they wanted to develop an attraction based around Survivor. And so, That's amazing. Yeah. And so what it ended up being was actually I, was a really interesting exercise because they're not going to spend Disney money. They're not going to even spend Universal money. These regional parks like that are a much smaller amount of capital, you know. So we got this sort of off-the-shelf piece of hardware. A lot of parks will use off-the-shelf. I hate to say carny because it makes it sound awful, but ride hardware, like things right. that spin or coasters, whatever, and then add scenery and effects and theming right. and branding and name. Some, put the Survivor font on this roller. Right, exactly right. We we found this very cool ride that was actually pretty fun that 
we made it Survivor by making it a game that you played in the queue while you were waiting to get on. And, Ooh, and, interesting. And because it was, it's what we call a, a pulse ride. It's not like a coaster where a new car is coming every couple of minutes. It was a ride where when people are on it, you're sort of standing there in the load station waiting for them to stop and get off. Right. So we did, um, so I was, I looked at the challenges in the show and, and I thought, well, wait a minute, we're a tribe of people. There's another tribe of people riding and that's their challenges, the thrill. What if we were to affect their ride somehow? And so you can't actually change the movement of the ride, but what we did was... We, um, we we made this game in the queue that's like... Remember Dance Dance Revolution where you would like yeah, stomp? Yeah, yeah. We made this tribal chant that you had to stomp your feet and clap your hands in a certain pattern. And, and we had uh, uh, Jenna and Ethan from season one and two of Survivor. Of course. Ethan uh, was so hot. Yeah, he was, and he was so sweet. He was the nicest guy. Did you work with him? Yeah, we filmed him for the pre-show and he was super nice. And yeah, he was super hot. Um, <laughs> and then he got sick and now is he better? I think, I think he's he better now. Cancer he had cancer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, anyway, they taught you this tribal stomp and tribal chant, and you have to, um, as the, the, the ride in front of you with the other tribe is going, and if you succeeded at three levels of doing this challenge, there were these giant tribal masks next to the ride that would spit water on the people riding. Like, ah, to shame them. And then if you so good. And if you did all three and you succeeded, there was a big torch above the ride that would go... <laughs> and explode in a big fireball, uh, signifying that you won the challenge. Right. And so it was sort of one-sided. The team on the ride couldn't retaliate, and they were getting off the ride when they're done. Yeah, that's a, they're but, on the ride, they're having fun anyway. Right. But that, but the, So we tried to create the dynamic of Survivor of us versus them and, right. and a little bit of gameplay. It ran for a couple of years, and then Paramount... Um, uh, ended up selling their chain of parks, and they so they ripped the branding off of everything they did. But it was one of the weirdest little creative challenges I've ever. Yeah, done. I love that. Yeah, it was fun. I think I know I, that's really cool. Okay, you pick some questions from the observation deck. We'll just, okay, we'll just burn through these. Okay, what's the most embarrassing CD you have in your collection? Oh God, uh, probably. Um, a, a, an Australian pop artist that was given to me by a traveler when I was out of the country when I was like 17. He's like, this is the most most popular album in the world right now. I made this guy named John Farnham. Like, oh yeah, I remember him. Oh my God, he had like half a hit here. Yeah. And, I, and it's one of those albums that I know by heart and know every song because I listened to it summer of 87 on that trip over and over and over again. What was the big single? Uh, You're the Voice was one of okay. them. You're the Voice, try and understand it. Uh, that's one I of think them. Olivia Newton-John sang one yes, or something. Yes, right. Yeah. And, and, and another song called uh, Pressure Down was like the big yeah. one. It was basically the No Jacket Required of Australia in okay. 1987. It, it was the white bread Phil Collins-y Phil Collins. pop, pop art. Describe your most unfortunate haircut. Oh, in mid-90s, I grew it out long, and my hair at the... I'm thinning now, but I was... Po- I, I had a full head of hair, but it was poker straight. Like, really straight. So it was sort of Breckenmeyer from Clueless skater okay. hair. That's what I thought it was. Like, pushed over my ears, sort of 90s. What right. it really looked like was Dorothy Hamill. Sort okay. of sort of bouncing and behaving. Right, you know? all right. And, and it was one of those things where I had it for a number of years, and when I got it cut, finally, all my friends were like, oh, thank God. Thank and I'm God. like, you fuckers! You like, could have told me. You could have said something. Yeah. Damn it. What movie have you seen more than any other? Tron. Of course. Easy. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. What song makes you cry? Oh, who's that? Uh, Matt Alber. The, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that He's song my he friend. does? The End of the World. Oh. It's like, about roller coasters. I know. That's Well, that's the thing. It's about riding a roller coaster, being like your relationship, and let's go on one more time for a second. I mean, yeah. I'm... Ch- I, you're gonna. I'm choking up thinking Don't about that song. I, 
Oh my God! It speaks to me and my life, and and you know, it's oh God, I it it's so achingly romantic in the most sort of sweet innocent kind of way yeah and the video of in the barbershop i'm a fan matt yeah. if you're listening i want to make out with you so bad yeah if, i kind of oh my god he came into i i stopped him when i was <laughs> guest hosting on sirius radio and i had him come in <laughs> and interview and he kind of flirted with me so much oh. and it was like everything i always wanted i know oh him a god. little bit He's yeah, cute. Yeah, He's yeah, super yeah. cute. And then I'm I invited scruffy. him to a party once, and he brought another person. No! Like, uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it was not, he was not meant to be. What's your favorite bad movie? My favorite bad Oh, The Stuff. It's a 1980s horror film. Okay. About killer ice cream. Oh, it happens. It, it's this weird goop that comes out of the yeah. ground that somebody, some redneck puts his finger in and tastes and goes, oh, that tastes good. Let's bottle it. And so yeah. they put it in, they put it into things and it becomes this nationwide craze that everybody yeah. wants it it's sweet it's no calories it's super popular it turns out to be an alien parasite so um, Garrett Morris is in it which is kind of amazing there you go <laughs> alright it's awful new, uh, new world new line entertainment a 1980s horror film the Terrible. stuff Netflix it or check it out yeah where's the coolest place you've gotten to go for work um wow I've gotten, big, I've gotten to go to so many cool places for work I would say um I love the fact that I get to go to London a lot. That's yeah. that's just cool for me. But I think the coolest place I've been to that I never would have gone to on my own would be Beijing and going to China. Because they're, they're fascinating places that I want to visit again, but I probably never would have gone had it not been for work. Were you there for a while? Yeah, I, I spent a couple of weeks in Beijing. Yeah. And not, I have friends. Yeah, no, they're for client meetings and things. Okay. I have friends that are living there now that are much longer than me that have been there for a long time. Yeah. Oh, also, and, and the, I, I lived in Madrid for like six months for a project, which was a lot of fun. Oh, I bet that was amazing. Which, again, was an experience. I would have gone as a tourist, but having the chance to be there for six months and live there was really something. Do you have any scars or tattoos with stories? Uh, I've got a scar in my back that came from one of my rides. What happened to you? <laughs> I um, uh, So, Men in Black, uh, after it opened, um, were there doing... When rides attack. When rides attack. Um, you're doing test and adjust, you know, and you're fixing things, and you have what's called the punch list, where you're making fixes and changes. And there was some stuff that, some props that needed to go in last minute. They were actually plastic flowers and flower boxes that were in one of the brownstone street sets. I, uh, there wasn't money in the budget, so I went and fucking bought them myself at, at Michael's and brought them to the ride and said, I'm going to install these things. Because that's how much you Because that's how much I care. And you have a thing with ride safety called the lockout, where when the maintenance guys are working on the ride, um, they lock out the ride system so that it won't run, it won't move along the track while they're in the building. And they have to clear all that out before they before they turn the ride back on. And they're little tags, right? It's called tagging out. You have to tag out, make sure the ride's not running. And and they also do have to do announcements. Uh, the ride system is powering up and will begin moving in five seconds, right? And there's, there's a whole safety procedure. Right. That procedure hadn't quite started yet because we weren't open to the public yet. Right. And so I was in there, and, I, and the ride vehicles were very, very, very silent. And they're not fast. They move pretty slowly, but they spin. And one of them creeped up right behind me and spun... And it hit me square solid in the back. This things, these things weigh like four tons. Oh, my God. Hit me in the back, and I fell on the ground, and I knew exactly what was happening. And I'm like, I have to roll over because it's going to run me over. And I rolled over, and immediately two ride vehicles went right by me. Oh, and I'm my like, God. Oh, my God. And I'm like, okay, so the safety people at Universal. All my friends at Universal who are listening to this, I'm sorry. I never told you that story because I never reported it. Um, 
Uh, I probably broke a million rules just being in the building. But anyway, long story short, I thought I was fine. I'm, I was a little sore. And then I got home, and Jason's like, uh, sweetie, have you seen your back? My shirt was ripped. It was covered in blood. <gasps> I didn't even notice. Because I didn't really God. feel it. I was in shock, right? Yeah. And I looked in the mirror, and it was this big gash down, down my back. And, um, uh, and yeah, I have a scar. Oh, have a I'm scar so glad it wasn't say. worse than it was. I know. Because it feels oh. like one of those stories. Yeah, crushed. Like, when rides oh, attack. When rides attack. Yeah, right, right. Here, that's something you bring up, though. Whenever I go on a <laughs> crazy ride, I think, how did they test this to find out how fast it can go without well, killing anybody? Kills you. That's a, like, how do they gauge it? That's a great question, and there's actually a whole business about that. Yeah. Um, um, there was a guy, he's, has, he's passed away recently, for, uh, a couple years ago, just from old age, but he was a doctor. It was funny as his name was Dr. Brown. Doc Brown from Back to the Future. Right. right? His name was Doc Brown. Dr. Brown was a spinal surgeon, I believe, a spinal specialist. And I think he was from sort of the Ohio area where you have, you know, Kings Island and and Cedar Point and like a concentration of three or four parks. Geauga Lake, a couple of other things. Anyway, he evidently made a, 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 a little cottage industry with the explosion of... There was a big coaster boom in the 70s because of a couple things. Steel production got cheap. Um, computer-aided drafting allowed complex moves and, and, and loops. So the coasters got bigger and faster. And, and the Brady Bunch went on and the Brady, ride. Oh, and everyone wanted to be Bunch. like them. I wanted to theme the racer at Kings Island to the 70s and have that episode of the Brady Bunch playing in the queue when I worked for Paramount and they wouldn't let me do it. I'm like, guys, this will cost like $500 and trust me, everybody's going to love it. Like, oh, come on. I know. People that wouldn't go to that park normally would go, would go just for, for that. that. Just to like watch the... I know. I know. I know. Um, anyway. Long- we would, you would lose your plans, your posters. <laughs> right. right. I wanted to sell that, the, the, sell that Yogi poster. That, yes. You know? um, but, but anyway, he basically came up with this this they needed to test these coasters and make sure that they were safe and so he came up with the system where he put an accelerometer which is basically a recording device that records motion in all directions and velocity and they strap it to the coaster and they run the coaster and so it's a machine that can and he looks at the data and goes all right you need to add a brake zone here to slow this down by by a couple of miles per hour um, you need to str- uh, this part piece of the track is a little bit rough if we can straighten that out you know nowadays a lot of that stuff's done ahead of time like they, they have so many digital tools now where they can check on human stress factors and things way before they build anything right. but back in the day it was like you know how do you know and, and I worked and I rate way I found out about them was um, working on the Back to the Future ride for Universal Studios which is a virtual ride right it's I love big, that ride it's a big projection screen and, and, a, and a DeLorean that moves around so there was no actual track or anything he uh, strapped his machine in our DeLorean and would ride our ride program and then tell us afterwards, hey, that lateral force at second at, at 10 seconds in is too much. Uh, shave that off by, you know. So he knew, he it was this institutional knowledge from this, from this guy who just did this that's now rippled that into the industry, everything that he did in the 70s um, as just this one guy. He literally would travel around the world. He had called him the ride doctor. That's really a cool thing. Really interesting, yeah. He passed away about four or five years ago, I think. But he was a, a, a really well known by a certain level of geek within the industry. You know, so you worked on Back to the Future. I did. You must have been really young. Is I was. That yeah, has come and gone. Yeah, uh, it it, um, it opened in Florida in 1991, and I was a tour guide at Universal Studios here in L.A. Oh my god! It was my first job out of it was for my job during high school and during college. Did you like it? And what happened was, I went to Florida to to, to see the park there when it opened. Um, and wrote it, and my head exploded, and I came back. It was so amazing because I was a huge fan of Back to the Future as well. Like I rode past Court- Hill Valley every day on the trams. I actually 
worked as a, I, I did in a previous life before I got into theme parks, I worked in film production and I worked on Back to the Future 2 and 3 for a little while. So I was kind of a big Back to the Future nerd. So after riding the ride, I came back to, back home to LA and I went to the upper ups of the management of the park because I was a VIP guide. So I knew a bunch of the executives and things. I'm like, you need to tell me everything about that Back to the Future ride. That's amazing. And evidently my showing interest in it, they were like, oh, we well, need to talk to this person. And I went to talk to some guy and it turns out that they were building it in Hollywood, and he offered me a job to be a project coordinator, um, which is like this entry level. It's like a PA. It's like a grunt. And I, I was like, oh, oh, yeah, sure. So I, it was kind of my first job. And um, that's that was your beginning in this industry. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely, so 100%. Did you go to school for it? I went to film school for a couple of years. Um, I thought I wanted to be either a writer or a cinematographer. I wasn't sure. I was enamored uh, with special effects cinematography, so I thought maybe I'll want to do miniatures. And two things happened. Writer strike in 1991. 91 or 93? I forget. Um, writer strike hit, so there wasn't a lot of production. And uh, CG started to happen with movies like Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park. And so the writing was on the wall that the two things I wanted to do in the movie industry were kind of changing, and I was not studying computer science. I was not in the right field. Right. And so I decided to take time off school, and I, I, I said, I'm going to drop out. I'll go back to the tour full-time, and I'll assess my, lick my wounds and figure out exactly what I want to be. And I was considering leaving entertainment entirely and maybe just going to get a degree for the sake of getting one. And right. that's when I found this. That's when I, oh, I'm going to go take a vacation. I went to Florida. I never planned it. And, and, and I, so it sort of fell into my lap. But because of your enthusiasm for something, somebody picked up on it and gave you an opportunity, and it just absolutely, absolutely, and that's an amazing story. And and it was a a real lesson for me early on that um, passion is a good thing, and um, and uh, opportunity happens when you don't expect it. So have your best networking face forward at all times. That's a good. That's good (laughs) advice. Were you sad when Back to the Future the ride changed? I did. I was there the last day actually, and there were all Back to the Future heads. There were all these fans, these all these kids that grew up with the movie. Have and you ever taken anything from a ride that's closed as a souvenir? Maybe. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> it's nothing you could point to in this room or anything. No, no, because it's kind of not what you do. Yeah, yeah I got you. I got you. <laughs> Just say memories. Just say my memories. Yeah, my, I, I, I take my memories. I take my loving memories. Have you ever puked on a ride? No. Um, I've gotten queasy, but I've never yeah. actually spewed. Do you like uh, intense roller coasters? I love roller coasters. Um, the spinny rides, I tend not to like. Yeah. Um, and I like them less and less as I get older, because I guess your your inner ear fluid yeah. and hairs start to age, and you don't do that stuff as well. But right. coasters I'm fine with. I love coasters. Yeah. What project have you worked on that has been the most underrated? Oh, uh, that's an easy one. I did this thing for in Las Vegas that was... Um, called the M&M's Academy. And it was for M&M Mars. Okay. And it was um, a shop on... There's, it's still... Th- the shop is still there on the strip. It's across from the New York, New York, and it's got big red and yellow M&M's on the... It's a big M&M store. You know, M&M's yeah. has, like, big candy stores. They wanted an attraction on one of the floors, and we did this... We came up with this idea where it was, like... The attraction was what an M M&M and M goes through to get their M, to get their letter, to earn their letter, That's like so like a charming. university. Thing. Yes, and 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 so we came up with the M M&M and M's Academy, and it was this multi-step walkthrough, and then like this 3D movie at the end that Will Vinton Productions, who did the original commercials, did, and and I wrote, and 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 my favorite thing in it was actually the logo because the logo looked like a school uh, school emblem. Yeah, and in in <laughs> and I actually called up a friend. 
from school, from high school, who I knew went to uh, seminary and was and knew Latin. And I said, "Can you translate something for me?" And so, the, the like a school emblem would have in Latin. It said, "Lock coccolatum in ori non in manu liquefacit," which means milk chocolate melts in your mouth, not in your hands. In Latin, you did that detail. <laughs> And so uh, it ran for a couple of years, and it was super small and charming and weird and like, why is it here? But I was so proud of it. And, it, and it's it, got a great story. Yeah. How does it get announced? I loved it. Right. How do, right. And well, and and the three don't grow on trees. Those no, M's. no, no. And then at the end of the ride, you find out that Red gambles away his M yeah. on the, at the craps table in Vegas, and so the adventure becomes you have to get his M back because it goes to the this lost realm. I remember when those. Uh, Eminem started being live cartoons. Yeah. And they would do these crossover promotions with Entertainment Tonight. <laughs> and I would feel so bad that, like, Mary Hart or whoever it was, had to talk to Red Jan M. Carl, had to do a bit with the Red Eminem. And he knew that they were, like, calling their agents, like, I don't want to do this. And they're like, you have to do it. It's the way future's going. Maria Menudos is looking right over your shoulder, so... And she and she will talk to her. She she bought, will so. talk to anything. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, M and M's. Okay, what's the most BS thing a suit has ever said to you? That's a good oh. one that you picked. That yeah, that's a good one. I, I've had a lot of really, really, you know, the the kind those of com- weird conversations. Those weird like, conversations. The weird comments where you just you, you have to take the note and nod and yeah. smile. Um, one of the best ones I remember was from a client who said. Uh, who was complaining about the scale and scope and budget of everything. And this was a client who wanted something very high-end. And he said, no, 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 look, 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 you don't understand. It doesn't have to be world-class. It just it just has to seem world-class. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, <laughs> it either is or it isn't. Right. But, but yeah, he, he... Get something that looks good that's kind of cheap. Right. It's, it doesn't have to actually be world class. It just has to seem, seem world, world class. class. All right. Okay. Whatever we'll, that means. We'll do that. What's a voicemail that was left for you that you played more than once? Ah, uh, wow. That's a, that's a hard one. Um, uh, oh, I remember what it was. Um, this is so specific and nerdy. It was after the opening of the Star Trek experience in Las Vegas. Um, uh, so I went to the opening of that, and at the opening, were you part, involved? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I I did a little bit of writing for various components of it. It was a yeah. it was a really cool attraction in Vegas that where you went on board the deck of the Enterprise and. It was a very cool, multi-part sort of immersive attraction. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, at the opening, we were each assigned to a cast member to sort of be their chaperone on the way into the attraction. Right. And I was given uh, Chase Masterson from DS9. She was uh, she was most famous for being the Dabo girl in DS9. She was like the casino gal. Okay. And she's a fan favorite. She, to this day, has been in a lot of... Um, uh, genre and sci-fi movies and, and does a lot of appearances at, at conventions and things. She is the dearest, sweetest gal. I'm actually Facebook friends with her. I love her to death. So, um, And she's amazing. And she was so much fun to go through the attraction because she was 
you know, she was like, oh my God, this is amazing. How do you guys do that? And asking me other questions and, you know, right. I got to be the expert for her. And, and she wasn't like the level of celebrity that people were bugging a lot. So right. we were sort of a little party of two. And she was so charming. And I remember getting back to my office like the following Monday, flying back to L.A. and, and going to my office. And I had this long email from her that was just this lovely... Kid- voicemail. Vo- yeah, sorry. Uh, uh, voicemail. This lovely little blown blown kiss. You were so great. I had so much fun. Please let's have lunch and catch up and stay in touch because I had the best time. You know, it's, And I played it a million times. Like, oh, my God. My, my, Star- awesome. my Star Trek fans would love this. That's awesome. Yeah. What's your best random celebrity sighting? Oh, oh, God. Last, uh, it's a recent one. Last year, I saw Fun Home. Oh, wow. In New York. Yeah. With the original cast. I want to see that. Oh, it's devastating. It's so great. It's wonderful, and I ugly cried the entire third act. Like, I'm not talking just a little tear. I'm talking, (laughs) like, snotsicles, and and I was was a wreck. It's an emotionally, unbelievably cathartic show. Um, Judy Kuhn, in particular, plays the, the wife, and it's just a devastating story for her. So, I'm... It's one of those shows where I'm stumbling out of the show and I, I'm i just staring into the middle distance because I'm still mulling over the show. And I sit down on the subway to go back up to my hotel and I'm just, and my eyes are puffy and red. And then all of a sudden this, the train starts to come to the next stop and this woman gets up in front of me and, and goes to the door and has to sort of move past me and says, oh, excuse me. And I look up and I lock eyes with her and it's Judy Coon. Oh, wow, right after you had seen her. And I literally had my playbill in my hands. Did you say anything? I did. I went, um, I, you were you were incredible. Like, I, I don't you know exactly what I said, but it was something around that. And she was so sweet. She, she saw that I was, like, literally on the, still on the verge of tears. And she just rubbed my arm and went, oh, sweet, that's so great. Thank you so much. And, and then as she leaves, I was like, I love you in chess. <laughs> yeah, I just want to get that... You want to prove that you know that obscure thing, right? Yeah. Not just this. I'm yeah, a fan. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. She, she, it was, but it was so random. Yeah, but it was such a New York moment, right? Because like just running into running into a cast member on the yeah. subway because oh right, they take the subway home. That's right. You know? Who were your teen crushes? Oh wow. Um, well, I, I think my earliest crush was actually an animated character. It was Yukon Cornelius from the from the Rudolph the Red Nosed Ranger. Red Nosed Ranger. Specials. That is very specific, right? What he, was so hot about him? He was a big, big mountain man. You know, yeah. I like the bears, so he's got the big red beard. And Jason sort of looks like him, actually. Right. It's kind of funny. Um, but yeah, I think he was my first. Um, I also had a huge crush on, um, uh, well, Harrison Ford in the original Star Wars. I mean, because yeah. he's just dreamy and snarky, and you know, right? Um, uh, Gil Gerard. Uh, what was from this thing? Buck, Buck Rogers. Rogers. Yeah. Well, that tight white lycra. Yes. Was very really? revealing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and um, uh, Colonel Steve Austin, the Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, um, Lee Majors. Lee Majors, right? Who? Yeah, very much so. I love that. Oh, because he was beefy and brawny, and yes, always had the hairy chest. Did you have like the doll and the game? Oh, and I had stuff? the doll. Yeah, oh, I had the doll. I had the I had the, that doll, and I had I think it must have been one of the big GI Joes because I don't think they made a Buck Rogers doll that I remember. remember. The big GI Joes, that yeah, were big. I would make them make out. Would you? Yeah, totally. That was so. You were on. You you I, were on top. I had of the GI Joe Jeep. On. I had the GI Joe Jeep, and 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 six million dollar man would sit in there. Or, I also had the Bigfoot because remember the Bigfoot came with. Yeah. Uh, I would put Bigfoot and GI and uh, and six million dollar man in the GI Joe Jeep, and they would go off camping together. So Bigfoot. Well, yeah. I, Could, I, I, was Bigfoot fuckable? 
I don't know, but he was a big furry dude. So, so I, yeah, not yeah. that I was turned on by him then, but I thought as a kid I thought it was funny. They would go camping. Like they're dating. Like they're friends now. Like it wasn't it wasn't a sexual thing. It was more like Bigfoot and they got over their differences. Yeah, big people just don't understand Bigfoot. He just wants a hug. Right. He just he just wants love. He just wants love like he all of us. Love. And that's how we're gonna end this. What do you love about your job? I love that every day I walk in it's a different challenge. And I love that I work with a staggering array of young talent. Um, that you lost me till you said young. Now I'm now I hate them. <laughs> right, and that's the thing. We we have a we have a model at Thinkwell that we call the geeks and geezers model. That yeah. It's like, oh God. It's it's <laughs> it's we, we about half of our staff we hire from sort of young fresh talent right out of right. design school. Half of them are old dudes like me that have been doing this for twenty years. Yeah. And to me, that's the favorite. It's my favorite working environment I've ever been in because of that. Because every day, I mean, it sounds. It sounds so schlocky, but it's the truth. I get to be a bit of a mentor, and I get to learn from them. I mean, we learn. It's a very symbiosis uh, relationship where, uh, hey, they have great new ideas. I have a bunch of experience that I can help them find their way and their path and their career. And, and in the same way that I was sort of shown my path by other people discovering that this industry even happened. You know, I had yeah. somebody at Universal sort of say, hey, you might be good at this, you know. Right. So I, it's, it's, a, it's nice to be able to pay that back. So I, I, that's my favorite part of work. I love that. Well, this has been really fun. Now, next time I go to a theme park, I'm going to think about you and all the little design touches and all the stuff that goes into Think about me. You're going to invite me along. Like, I know. We're, we're like, I love that you land. still want to go. Oh, yeah. You're not over it. <laughs> I went there. I could, I could do like once every five years. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. It's all right. It's totally right. sorry. It's all right. All right. When you, go to, when you go to Disneyland, where do you go first? Space Mountain. Space Mountain. Boom. Yeah. Get it, it out of the way. Get, yeah, because it's going to have a three-hour line later. Yeah. All right. Good to know. I love all these inside <laughs> tips. All right. How can people learn more about what what you do? Uh, they can curious. go do, to. Do you have a Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. They can go to thinkwellgroup.com for okay. more information about the company. So if you have a theme park and you need a designer, yeah, Thinkwell Group also has a Twitter account. Um, you can find me at davecobb.com. Okay. Or at Dave Cobb on Twitter, or about.me slash Dave Cobb, which is sort of all of my internets aggregated together. I love it. Well, you've got it together. All right, thank you so much. This has been really delightful and interesting. Thank you. All right, bye. Bye. Thanks again to Dave Cobb. I hope you think of him and our conversation the next time you're standing in line for a theme park attraction, and you'll realize everything that goes into every little detail of the experience. All right, so this happened. I'm actually recording this in the cabin of a cruise ship. My friend Scott and I co-created this show for Princess Cruises called Hollywood Screen Test, and we're out on uh, the Royal Princess now directing the cast and mounting the show, as it were. So it's our first day on board, and so far, so good. So it's really fun. But, but the thing that I wanted to share with you is the night before I left, my friend Jeb, Matt, and Steven and I got together for a little uh, game night at Matt's house, and Jeb is a big games guy. He loves board games and stuff like that. And I guess every year he does a little research into what the hot game is. So he has this game called Code Names, and I'm obsessed with it. It's really fun. It's a little bit password. It's a little bit concentration. It's a little bit um, country and a little bit rock and roll. But if you're a, if you're a board game player, like if you like word games and strategy games and things like that. I highly recommend Code Names. Um, the day after I played, I flew out to Florida to join the ship, and I made sure we went to Barnes & Noble in Florida so I could buy my own. So hopefully we'll play it on the boat. Um, but that's my big tip. That's my uh, word of advice for 2016. 
get that game. It's fun. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.